It's community radio. We can do what we want. Much vaunted, much touted, much accomplished Green Majority Program, Canada's most lamentable environmental news hour. We are just squeezed between the Pacific and the Atlantic, dipping below the 49th on the Golden Horseshoe. CIUT 89.5 FM or your go-to community radio platform or podcasting is an option for listening to this particular golden program, The Green Majority. Harbinger Network, shout out. Environmental news, Cop City. Yeah. Cop City. Stefan's going to interview... Dr. Laura Tozer, who is a professor at the University of Toronto, doing a, a project on urban just transitions. Talking to folks in Scarborough about what a just transition would look like for them, and what, fascinating. What would it look like? I mean, they're just starting the project. So if you're from Scarborough and want to get involved, you can. Keep listening. Very cool. That's okay. exciting. Scarborough, Ontario. Yep. But first, Stefan... Yeah, very quickly. Um, off the top, uh, because this is an environment show, uh, I just want to take a quick second to commemorate and dedicate this show to Luna, who is a fantastic dog who was an internal puppy, wise beyond her years, and a friend to all. Oh, that was a really beautiful well, testament to Linda? Luna. Luna. <laughs> I like the idea of naming a dog after like an HR lady, though. I did imagine like how different my perception of this wonderful dog would be if her name was Linda. She was a Linda, Linda actually. Thinking not. about her now, wow. she might have been a Linda. Do not insult the beautiful memory of Luna. Don't insult our step aunt. <laughs> There's like an old meme from like years ago, and it's this like three year old boy trying to convince his mom that it's okay that he's eating a cupcake. And he's like, Linda, Linda, listen, honey, listen, honey. <laughs> Luna, the Israeli stray black lab, yeah. plucked up off the dusty streets by Stefan's wife oh, and brought into Canada. Shout out to Luna. Shall we get into news? Let's do it. Sorry, let's do it with a little more gusto. Let's do it. Yay. Nice. There we are. Although, although gusto is going to somewhat contrast with the depressingness of the news, but that's the usual for the show. Yeah. Got to keep going. Just keep swimming. The that words burns. of horrible bully Ellen DeGeneres. This is a story that we did talk about, I think, several months ago. I don't even know how long ago. But when these activists first started camping out in a forest just outside of Atlanta to stop this cop city from uh, from being built. And now, so now Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, uh, declared a state of emergency last week 
which allows the state to deploy up to a thousand troops from the National Guard to police Atlanta until February 9th. Kemp is trying to quell protests that have exploded after an environmental justice activist named Tortuguita was killed by police on the 18th of January while protecting a forest from being turned into a massive police training facility. Police have not released any body cam footage of the killing, but have claimed that the victim shot at them first. Tortuguita was an outspoken proponent of nonviolence, arguing that the police can't be defeated through aggression. They were part of a low-key but powerful movement that has been camping out in the forest for over a year. The proposed training center has become known as Cop City because it's meant to mimic an urban environment and it could end up training police from all over the world. The area was supposed to remain a public park until mid-2020 when the Atlanta Police Foundation announced its plan to build Cop City and apparently indicated that it would attack any politicians who were against it. City Council approved the plan on a 10-4 vote after 17 hours of public input that was almost entirely against it. The Police Foundation is paying for two-thirds of the $90 million project, and the city will have to pay the remaining $30 million, even though all profits will go to the foundation. The area used to be a prison farm, which means that the unmarked graves of detained people, largely black, are scattered through the forest. The movement has also invited descendants of the indigenous Muscogee people who were robbed of the land in the 1800s. Police have responded to recent protests by charging activists with terrorism, even if all they did was stay in a treehouse for longer than the cops wanted them to. The charges come with a potential 35 years in prison, and in some cases bail was set at $335,000. The police killing of Tortuguita has attracted solidarity activism from around the country and internationally, and this, combined with incredibly brutal and vindictive police tactics, is drawing comparisons with Standing Rock. The Instagram page Stop Cop City also attacks the omnipresent surveillance apparatus in Atlanta, which is another product of the police foundation. Atlanta has the most surveillance cameras per capita in the United States, and its surveillance program, quote, relies on private funding and encourages businesses to connect their cameras with police through a video surveillance hub that blankets Atlanta business districts. The foundation is also working on a predictive policing program that uses an algorithm to profile people who haven't yet committed any crimes. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens Uh, has the power to kill the cop city at any time, but he remains in favor of it. He promised this week that a revised plan would leave uh, a lot of green space still for the public. Natasha Leonard recently wrote about the movement for The Intercept, quote, With little national fanfare, defend the Atlanta forest slash stop cop city activists nimbly deployed a range of tactics. Encampments, tree sits, peaceful protest marches, carefully targeted property damage, local community events, investigative research, and at times direct confrontation with police forces attempting to evict protesters from the forest. The proposed militarized training compound known as Cop City has thus far been held at bay. And she adds, quote, The Atlanta-based movement should be seen as an example of rare staying power, thoughtful strategizing, and the crucial articulation of environmentalist politics situated in anti-racist, indigenous, and abolitionist struggle. Thank you.
there are obviously a bunch of different threads that you could pull from the story, both inspiring in terms of the activism and devastating in terms of the death and destruction at the hands of the police. But I think the thing I'd want to highlight for our Canadian listeners is how we have to see the police state as directly opposed to the world we want to see as people committed to a world of climate justice. Because time and time again, we see examples of this. Sometimes it's, you know, less direct, like here in Toronto, the prioritization of the police budget increases while gutting the TTC and social services, or in Ottawa, where it was very well documented that local police officers were acting in direct support of the convoy last year. And sometimes it's in very direct ways, such as the Guardian report from a few years ago that showed fossil fuel companies were directly donating to police foundations, such as the police foundation that was mentioned in the story that Dave just read. And more recently, we saw the Vancouver police put their foot on the scales of democracy by openly endorsing the ABC party, which received a one out of six ranking for their climate voting records prior to the election. And so, quite simply, we cannot live in a climate-just future where half of our resources are sucked into the vortex of criminalization of poverty and the militarization of government services. So... Hats off to the folks in Georgia fighting Cop City, and let's pay attention to all of the people across party lines who seem to think that the rest of society is so scary that we need assault rifles on the subway. But to you, Lauren. No, thanks for thank you for coming in with that. Um, I think the thing I've just been sitting here kind of ruminating on is the fact that abolition of both the prison system and and police forces because they they go hand in hand in a lot of ways and and a lot of their proponents come from the same sort of like activist lived experience theoretical backgrounds those are two issues that as of yet at least speaking not necessarily for grassroots spaces but those are two calls to action that i don't actually see coming up in the climate movement nearly as much as we need to be i work in the nonprofit kind of like engo world with a lot of um, climate focused organizations across the country. And I'm trying to think right now, if I were to, for instance, put out a letter calling for like police abolition in some in some form or prison abolition in some form, what are the organizations that would sign on to that? And I know a lot of individuals who would align with that politically and align with that like morally and ethically and theoretically. But I struggle to think of a large number of climate organizations who are presumably and um and like would like self-profess to be like fighting for a more progressive leftist future who would be willing to put that kind of statement out there publicly. And I, well, and I guess I was going to say, I, I wonder what the root of that is, where that kind of cognitive dissonance comes from, but we know where it comes from. It's because a lot of people who call the shots within, within professional quote unquote progressive climate spaces are white people who have directly benefited from police violence over the last several hundred years. Um, so trying to figure out how we can start to sort of introduce these concepts into spaces and in, with, with increasing tenacity. Um, and I guess it, 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 it's, it's one of the ways in which it's like, we talk a lot about incorporating principles of anti-oppression and decolonization into into our various workplaces and practices and it's like okay and like and this is what that looks like because because our our police forces whether it's in the states or whether it's like north of that colonial border here in so-called Canada it's like that's what they exist to do they exist to uphold and enforce white supremacy so if if we're actually earnestly against those things these are actions we need to be taking and these are lines that we need to enforce it's funny in the conversation I have later with uh, with 
Dr. Laura Tozer, we sort of talk about how one might define a just transition and the def- and how the battleground to define the just transition is maybe the battleground of how much work gets done. You know, like if we allow the sort of technocratic understanding of a just transition to basically mean that people in heavy industry and oil sands get jobs in solar and then we're done, you know, we will have not really solved most of the problems. Maybe you'll get a you'll you'll have some fewer emissions, but that's that's just only for one part particular population. In the in the conversation, she sort of stresses that like if you don't build a just transition that firmly begins with the most marginalized communities, then you're only going to create a just transition that further entrenches those marginalizations of these communities. And the difference between sort of the more activist sphere and sort of the more policy sphere is there is some very ingrained power that then begins to have its influence very much seen in the policy sphere. You know, like, Cop City is a great example of this. The mayor, I'm pretty sure, Atlanta is a Democrat. Both their senators are Democrats. You know, a huge percentage of Georgia, in in many ways, of the people who are leading this state right now are Democrats. I, I believe the the Republican won the governorship. But that still means a lot of the people who have the power to change this and to do something else about this are not. And we said everywhere, like, you know, Biden, as we said earlier, uh, like is is wanting to hire 100,000 more police officers. Like these are things that there is a shift between sort of the grassroots activist based community who want to see climate justice and then the people who are in the policy sphere. And very quickly, you see how much that power shifts. And we have to figure out how to push back against that because the entrenched power that exists there are, is the same entrenched power that exists for fossil companies. It's the same entrenched power that exists in all these different systems of oppression that are that they are self-enforcing. Like fossil fuel f- companies are giving money to police foundations. We know this. It's happening. And so if the people pushing back against you know fossil fuel companies are still going to allow a police union in Vancouver to basically say that we want this guy elected and get him elected, then we have a long way to go in terms of actually shifting our shifting power because we're only taking on the safer enemies you know they're only taking on the the safer conversations whether rather than finding a way to have the more difficult conversations about what does community safety look like you know how do you engage people who might be scared to go on the TTC because of you know because of incidents and like how do you talk to them about how more cops aren't going to solve that problem you know which is a hard conversation it takes some deep listening but it's the only way we're going to get somewhere well, and it's like, and you say like with, when you're like referencing specifically Atlanta with with a Democratic mayor and et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, different from different from Toronto right now because we yeah. because Ontario has has an extremely regressive conservative premier, and um, I don't think your mayor's all that great either, from what I understand. But um, not only do they not only do they come from a Democratic party, they also like ostensibly have the democratic in the small d sense mandate to to proceed with smaller police budgets and smaller police forces because like i i don't know like it's not that oftentimes my uh my sort of my north star or like the the measuring stick i use to think about like what does the average person think about x issue in the world are um people like my parents they are of the boomer generation they think of themselves as relatively progressive and relatively liberal. They both would um, take Usbridge or find Usbridge? Umbridge. Umbridge. Usbridge was my, was my high school English teacher. Um, <laughs> they take, they would take Umbridge with me having like that qualifier of like, they would consider themselves progressive. 
anyway, there are people who would like, they might not get out there and march for prison abolition or police or like rolling back of a police budget, but they certainly wouldn't push against it. If, if, if somebody were to come to their door and say, Hey, I'm well, and actually, I know this is the case. It was like if somebody comes to their door and says, hey, I'm running on lowering a police budget and putting more of that money into social services and more money into the library system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Thinking of a thinking of a, a municipal budget here. I, I would I believe quite strongly that people like my parents, who, again, by no means would consider themselves abolitionists, would be like, yeah, no, that sounds great. Of course, that sounds good, because the average person who is well-intentioned and approaching things with good faith, I think, can see from any number of stories on the news at any given time that police forces all over the world. But even if we're just looking at like Western, the like Western, like North America, um, are time and time again overstepping those boundaries and time and time again abusing their power and it's worked into the system it's not just like the few bad apples it's no this is how the system is is intended to operate anyway again not making a groundbreaking point here but just saying that like unfortunately it's some it's a concept that is intimidating and difficult to get people to rally around because it sounds so extreme um but in actuality i think it's something that the average person if the question were just to be phrased to them differently would would be keen to put their support behind as a voter or as as a relatively medium engaged citizen, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think also there's just an element of not backing down, you know, like the I feel like the Democrats themselves in the state especially kind of basically were like, oh, defund the police. That sounds bad. And then sort of just by backing down sort of made it bad, you know, like in the way that like if you're like, no, we want to defund the police for these reasons. This is why. I'm going to make you the clear case for it. Then I think people can let people be smart and talk about it and listen to it. But people get so obsessed with the idea of optics, they don't actually understand that people can and will listen. Like if you just talk to people and say, "Here's what we here's what we want to do and why we want to do it," you know, you will you can get people to listen and and take action versus just sort of like this idea of like, "Oh, this polls poorly, so I'm going to bail on this messaging and I can have some other notes like that's just not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, it's a combination of of, of the concept polling poorly because a word like abolition freaks people out the same way a word like decarbonize freaks people out. But also, like you said, it's 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 that these um, it's, it's that we have the oil and gas industry pumping money into police unions and and candidates that, that support them. It's 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 that it all feeds into this larger apparatus of of the extremely wealthy pumping in a bunch of money into police forces to militarize them to make sure that like if their workers want to go on strike because they want more wages then the police are going to be there to beat the sh- um, the stuff out of them <laughs> so that they can't go on strike you know it's like it's well no and and ultimately what it comes down to and it's something that we probably don't like express specifically enough on this show, though it's a a sentiment we all feel. It's like the rise of militarized police, which is what we see all over North America, whether it be in so-called Canada or the States, it's like that is a harbinger (laughs) of like fascism being on the rise and the ways in which the, the extremely wealthy are going to continue to repress not just the poor, but like working class folks as well. Yeah, this is a bummer of an episode. Oh, yeah. I mean, the rest of the interview, actually, it's a very positive interview with Laura, uh, Dr. Laura Tozer. But you have to know, Lauren, you have to know that there is a paradise that we are building together. And there is just there is just a gorgeous jeweled garden blooming around us. You know, Dave, 
I, when you speak in that tone of voice, I feel like there's a preacher in you. I feel <laughs> like you should, we should actually, we should just cede this space to you and you can sermonize every, every week for an hour, build beautiful. up your little church. Oh my God. Cult leader, Dave. I could see it. Beautiful new future. Erin Dottie Roy, you know, on a, on a calm morning, we can hear her whispering or what is she doing i have no idea i just want to note so a better a better world is not only possible she's on her way in a calm morning i can hear her singing or murmuring or poetizing or whispering or, or waxing philo- philosophical um in the hindu kush sorry okay the i want to note very quickly that apparently georgia or sorry atlanta has had a democratic mayor uh since 1879 uh william l calhoun was the first democratic mayor yeah that doesn't sound like a contemporary name and fun fact atlanta was the first place that i saw an uh a an anti-abortion rally it was incredibly scarring at a very young age anyway what's the news So an iceberg the size of London recently broke off Antarctica. A <laughs> a deadly cold in uh, is gripping East Asia, and harsh harsh cold temperatures have now become routine in East Asia. Historically, not as much. A slow moving cyclone has killed at least thirty people and displaced around forty thousand in Madagascar. I mention that because. Rising global temperatures are associated with slower moving storms. So I don't know. I'm, I'm not just gonna I'm not just gonna report on every single weather event in the world. I mean, come on. Anyway, 600 people were killed from flooding in Nigeria last year, uh, but neither presidential frontrunner cares about climate change. The Horn of Africa is likely headed for its sixth straight failed rainy season. That is Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia. The EPA has blocked Alaska's pebble mine from going forward. Jesse Blazer writes for Grist, quote, The Environmental Protection Agency used the Clean Water Act on Monday to veto a proposed copper and gold mining project near Alaska's Bristol Bay. Not only does the veto apply to the pebble mine project, which would have dug a into the path of the world's largest sockeye salmon run, it prevents any similar developments from moving forward in the watershed. Which is interesting because I've only heard stuff about the EPA being like disorganized and, and gutted, but here they go. And finally, the federal environment minister, Stephen Guibault, recently implied that Ottawa might step in to halt Doug Ford's plan to develop part of the Greenbelt. All I want to say here is that there is so much going on with this Greenbelt news and that we do just do not have the ability to cover on this show. And so, like, just this week, the NDP submitted information to the Integrity Commissioner that implies that there were people who knew about the government decision to open up the green belt prior to the announcement. And there was a, another story that was, I recently saw about how the attempts to build the number of housing that is planned in these areas of the green belt and around will, like, threaten the Great Lakes Treaty between the U.S. and Canada because of how much... Uh, human feces would have to get dumped into the Great Lakes as a part of this plan. 
Um, all of this, if you want to go read, go it's, it's go read it on the Narwhal. It's a, it's a Narwhal story that just came out. There's a whole bunch. It actually is one of the best um, headings I've ever seen. This was Dereliction of Duty, which on is a huge kudos to to the to the headline writer for that one. Um, but yeah, basically what I'm saying is that like there seems to be more and more stories that the Narwhal keeps breaking about this. They had a talk about it, I think, last week. I'm sure they'll keep doing it. So go fund them, support them, and read these stories if you want to get a better breakdown because there's just so much there that it sort of takes a, a whole whole team to pay attention to. And actually, the last note I was going to make is you're directing people to the Narwhal to the Narwhal. I'm directing people to National Observer because you mentioning Stephen Gibault. Um, they have a really great profile of Gibault that came out the other day, I believe written by John Woodside. He's a great journalist. Um, so if you're looking for a little bit of insight into our, um, our, I, I say as though all of our listeners, most of our listeners are from, are from this fake country of ours, but um, our environment minister, Stephen Gibault, his 25 years um, as a quote unquote environmental activist, how he kind of ticks. It's a really good piece. It gives a lot of good insight. So go check that out. If you're looking for a little more info there. All right. And now we'll go to a music break and Stefan will return with Laura Taser. Dr. Laura Tozer. Dr. Laura Tozer. And they are discussing Scarborough, Ontario becoming a climate friendly paradise. No? I mean, we're talking about urban just transitions and the need to expand our understanding of what a just transition is beyond the oil workers. Nice. I'm excited to listen. It's good. Communist propaganda. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity to remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and as previewed earlier on the show, I'm here with Dr. Laura Tozer, a, prof- a professor at the University of Toronto, to talk about urban just transitions. You may remember from previous episodes, we've mentioned that this concept about just transitions is going to be all over the news probably this entire year, at least in the very much in the lead-ups in the Alberta election, but it's going to be with us for quite some time because the transition is coming. The question is just whether or not it will be just. So we're very excited to have you here, Laura. And by way of introduction, can you just tell us a bit about your research and sort of what brought you to this research cluster that you're a part of? Sure. And thanks so much. I'm really happy to be speaking with you today. I 
co-lead a research cluster that's coming out of the University of Toronto, University of Toronto Scarborough. And we work together with community partners on this, this idea of urban just transitions. And this is a, a community-based research project that's really trying to understand how we can tackle issues of inequality while we're taking climate action. And we're really focused on Scarborough in particular, trying to take this, this close-to-home approach to take, making climate action more equitable. And my larger set of research is all focused on climate action and policy in, in lots of different dimensions. And I really try to understand how we can accelerate action. We're not acting nearly fast enough to address the climate crisis. And so I have, I have different research projects that look at different aspects of how we can speed it up. And this, this cluster that, that I co-lead along with another professor at, at U of T Scarborough, Matthew Hoffman, is really focused on this idea of how do we speed it up in a way that makes people's lives better in lots of different dimensions. So maybe we can spend a, a second longer just to talk about this urban just transition center or cluster, because I, I don't know if anyone knows what research clusters are even are outside of academia and, and what you're sort of working to do and what you're researching. Sure. The, so the research cluster at UFT Scarborough with Community Partners is a group of academics and community organizations that are share an interest in this idea of equity and climate action. So it's a group with funding from the University of Toronto, and we have research projects that try to understand and enact just transitions. We try to understand what people prioritize in their communities and how climate action could deliver that. We try to understand what a, a fair transition might look like for how it how it takes place. And it's a it's a cluster that has a couple of different parts to it. Part of it is just a group of us that have individual research projects that share a connection through this topic of, of climate and inequality. But we also work together on a community-based research project. And the idea there is that there's a steering committee that has both academic and environmental organization representatives and community service organization representatives. And together, we're in the early stages of planning a project that we will deliver together on the ground that we're thinking of as a, a listening project in Scarborough, trying to understand people's priorities for their communities and how that intersects with climate action. What are your everyday concerns and how does that relate to the kinds of transition that we need in Scarborough if we're going to address the climate crisis? And that project is something that we're working a lot on over this this next year. But in order to get it organized, we spent a lot of time thinking about what a just transition is. What do we even mean by that? What would what would addressing inequality while we take climate action look like? So part of what we do is is this trying to think about the foundations of of taking action, of what the meaning of just transition is. But because we're a community-based research project, we're also trying to build into enacting that change that we envision together. What, you know, part research, part action is, is the goal of this cluster. Awesome. And so I kind of want to tease out two parts of that. And so I'll start with the just transition piece and then I'll move to the, the Scarborough piece because partially I am biased. I grew up in Scarborough. And so the combination of a just transition and sort of my hometown is really interesting to me, but also... Part of it is that, and this sort of touches both sides of it, I'm so interested in learning and talking more about how a just transition isn't just about oil workers or those who are part of the extraction economy. Like, yes, that's a part of the conversation because the transition away will mean that they particularly will not have the jobs they currently have. But so much of our economy 
cannot exist in a in a zero carbon future that we have to have a deeper and wider conversation and, and thought process about it. And so centering this conversation, these questions in Scarborough is such a useful way to imagine you know, what does suburban life look like in a zero carbon world? And how are these people's lives who are affected and what would they like to see? And it really, I think, opens our eyes and expands the possibilities of what a future can look like, because it's not just sort of a technocratic change of oil workers into, into solar panel installers, which part of it, I'm sure, is a part of it. Great. But this deeper conversation is really interesting to me. So let's start with the just transition. Like, how would you describe it? You're completely right that most of the time when we hear just transition in Canada in particular, it's that idea of the, the labor transition out of the fossil fuel sector. And what we're what we're trying to think about as we think about just transition is is to try to widen the view or recognize that there's a much wider view about the kinds of justice considerations we should take into account as we're making transitions. So your um, suburban example was really good. As we transform the the way we live, the patterns of our communities, how do we adapt the old ones and make new ones? There are a lot of equity implications of those decisions. Like, for example, if we really focus on personal electric vehicles as the just transition technical solution that we're that we really want. Yes, that would that would help a lot of people in Scarborough, but there are a lot of people in Scarborough and Toronto broadly that that don't own a car and don't plan to buy one. And so if that's our only solution, that's our only climate action transportation solution, then we have a real justice problem then, because there's no way for most people to get around in a low carbon to zero carbon way. So thinking about who benefits from taking climate action, I think, is a, is a big part of what we're thinking about oh, as we take just transition. Who's targeted to benefit from climate action? Who, who makes the transition? And a lot of the times when we think about climate action and the need to make transition, we think about that as a, that as a burden. You know, there's someone who has to change. Which to some extent is true. We don't we don't want to to only ask particular communities to change the way that they live and, and you know, in that way, subsidize other communities not having to change at all. But what I, I'm thinking a lot about as we talk about just transition is how all these transformations we need to make to our communities in order to make them zero carbon. How can at the same time we improve other aspects of people's lives? Keeping on the transportation example in Scarborough, the public transportation in Scarborough is, is terrible. It takes forever to get around. You, can, you just physically can't get to so many places in Scarborough. We know that electrified, cheap or free public transportation is a massively important climate action. So can we really do that on purpose in Scarborough, knowing that there's this inequality, this existing inequality in Scarborough when it comes to transportation? So... I think one thing that we're seeing as we look at the one thing that we're doing in the group is that we're looking at the range of meaning that people are already using when they're talking about just transition or related topics. They're talking about equity and climate action or they're talking about inequality. They may not use those exact words, but they're talking about this idea of what's fair and who benefits and how much do we have to transform. And and there's a real range of meaning in, in who is targeted for that transition. Sometimes it is people already working in the fossil fuel sector. But we also find that there's a wide spectrum beyond that, too. We, we think about sometimes people are talking about marginalized communities, a particular, particularly identifying different marginalized communities that have historical and structural inequalities perpetuating you know, their, 
the, their lack of access to different things, different benefits of society. But people are also using just transition kinds of ideas to think about how all of creation benefits from this transformation in terms of spirits, plants, animals, fish, water, land, future generations, thinking about a much more interconnected and interconnected over time and interconnected with ecosystems ideas for who benefits from, from just transition. So I think that's, that's one dimension that we're thinking about is inequality and benefit for who. But we also have noticed that there's a range in, in ideas about the processes that we might use to achieve just transition and the scope of change that people think is, should be on the table in order for it to qualify as just transition. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because that scope of change is going to be, I mean, probably arguably the actual real battleground. You know, like if you actually look at the ways where, say, the federal government is beginning to talk about just transition or the sustainable jobs legislation they're bringing out, it does look like, you know, you can very much see a path where it is exclusively technocratic, which then also goes back to your, some of your other points there about like, if it is mostly technocratic and mostly about oil workers, then this is really a, a very, very heavy male dominated, quote unquote, just transition, despite the fact that, say, you know, we saw that the pandemic mostly hurt, you know, women and women identified folks. And so we're sort of once again prioritizing these sort of male jobs because they are historically promoted in some ways or seen as identifying provinces in many ways in terms of oil work in Alberta. And and so it's just like you can see very quickly how it could really just carry on and repeat the same structural inequalities because we are refusing to imagine, a, you know, a broader understanding of these sort of conversations. And so it's you, yeah very interesting to, to sort of highlight that particular part of like, where do we draw the line of what is even counts as a just transition? You know, like if we accept that whatever the feds put forward in a couple of months is what a just transition is, we lose out on a huge swath of of people who who really need to be a part of this kind of conversation. Which brings me to the second part of this, which is Scarborough, because obviously, to my knowledge, there are very few, if zero, oil workers in Scarborough. I don't. <laughs> I've been around most of the most of the place. I don't think there are any oil wells in Scarborough. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's that's accurate. And so by definition, this project will be looking at people in other other vectors. And so I'm curious, what led you to sort of choose Scarborough? I mean, obviously part of it is proximity in that, you know, the UFT Scarborough is located there. But I'm interested in sort of how you imagine that unfolding and and what you hope to learn from, from choosing, you know, this suburb of Toronto. Yeah, really, really good question. That that's right. That there, and but you made a really good point at the beginning too. That just because there are no oil workers in in Scarborough doesn't mean there's no really locked into high carbon industries or jobs, but also ways of ways of living in Scarborough. So I think what in- interested us in Scarborough was the. I mean, Scarborough is a really fascinating community. We were located there, which was really important to us to be working in the the place where we're living and and, and working, but. It's a really fascinating community and the breadth of variation across Scarborough. So the the numbers of different communities that we could be talking to in Scarborough, if they're interested in, in engaging on this project, really interested us. The inequalities in relation to a larger metropolitan area, I think, was something else that interested us. You brought up a good example of the kind of suburban layout of, of a lot of Scarborough because it's it's part of our project is trying to kind of tackle the challenges of of climate transition. There are, you know, 
easier sectors and places. They're already dense or they're already working with zero carbon opportunities to a large extent. We wanted to work in a place that where we could learn something about what it means to tackle climate action in a place that that some some challenges and inequalities that need to be addressed at the same time. And what I what I think about a lot as I think about this project is is how successful climate action brings a lot of transformation and and with that I'd like to that to go towards improving people's qualities of life and addressing the inequalities in their community. So I think Scarborough, to me, offered a lot of those dimensions in terms of it's it's fast growing in a lot of ways. So the transformation is already happening and can we direct it towards climate action? It's got recognized needs in some of the key climate action areas. I already mentioned transportation, but housing as well. Part of my research relates to energy poverty and, and how we can retrofit our existing building stock or housing stock in ways that lay a foundation for climate success by making them more efficient. But how do we do that in ways that are targeted towards the most vulnerable communities? And, and how do we do that in a way where we're adding housing too and making more opportunities for affordable housing for people, which is clearly a very crucial issue in Scarborough. And so I think that's what that's what interested us. And I think that, that what we found in the early stages of this project is that is a, a really great response, especially from organizations that maybe don't put climate in their tagline. It's not the flagship topic that they include in in their mission, but they have developed climate has slowly been creeping up their priority list. Maybe it would have been eight or nine or 10 several years ago, and it's now up in the two or three because of the way that climate intersects with food insecurity, the way that climate intersects with transportation concerns. And so we were, were really excited about how this project had a really promising response from the beginning from the community organizations about climate being important to environmental and community service organizations that were already doing this work in Scarborough. I guess then that's the last point about why why working in Scarborough in particular was important to us is because we know that there's all of this work already happening in in Scarborough working on different aspects of inequality climate action or both. And so we wanted to create a, a research project that hopefully offered some of the resources from that we have on the university side of things to amplify some of those efforts. And doing that close to home in a place that was in need of opportunities through climate action, I think was a, a real goal of ours. Super cool. I mean, I, I love that PC mentioned or the interesting combination of earlier, you sort of mentioned the difficulty of transit in, in Toronto and or in Scarborough specifically, which I could have a 30 minute rant on. I won't, I will not subject you or anyone else to, but let me just say it is a travesty what has happened in transit planning in Scarborough, an unbelievable, unmitigated travesty. And everyone in Scarborough deserves drastically more than what has been basically put to them. But it's interesting that when you think about just transition, so often we talk about workers and the ability for workers to have other jobs. But the more I think about it and actually just hear from hearing you is maybe think about this more. There is also this question of how can people participate in it from the rest of their life perspective? You know, like Scarborough right now is very, very hard to get around without driving. And that's even with the rapid transit system that's going to be go under in about a year or whatever it is now. And so even as transition occurs, 
if you aren't giving these people any other way to get around their city, then they are being shut out of a just transition in the, in a very similar way, right? Like they are being forced to live a high carbon lifestyle because they're given no other options. And, and that is not something that we really talk about too much when we think about the just transition. We don't talk about people's ability to participate really in any other way of the transition except for it within their, within their jobs. And that becomes such a hyper-focus that we sort of miss all these other ways, yeah, that, that, that people will need to participate in a future that has been transitioned. And they need the ability to do that in a way that doesn't harm them. And in, again, as you said, makes their life actually better in the process. Yes, that's completely that's completely true. And and I'm I'm so glad that that you put it that way in the broadly across their life participating in the climate transition. And I, I emphasize that a lot because there is so much focus on jobs in the just transition conversation. And I think that the just transition does offer so many other employment of zero carbon society employment opportunities. Going back to my retrofitting buildings example the amount of work that's going to go into making every single building in in Canada in Scarborough more efficient and not powered by a fossil fuel furnace anymore it is a huge amount of work which is a huge job opportunity a, a distributed job opportunity so it's not to say that you know this view this you know transitioning out of transitioning into zero carbon jobs is not a really massive opportunity and is a big part of just transition. But there are so many other dimensions of people's lives that are are influenced by this transition. And I think I want to circle back to something we were saying at the beginning where if if we don't work on purpose to make the transition actively try to address inequalities, then the most likely outcome by far is that the transition will reinforce the existing inequalities that we have in society. That's just the way that we, we know urban development works like that. We know lots of things about society work like that. It's the status quo, the path of least resistance, even though if we're swapping out a new, not even just a new tech, but a, but a new job opportunity, if we don't actively direct that towards trying to benefit some of the most historically marginalized communities, then, then they will continue to be the, the marginalized communities. And so that that's the society-wide view is what we're trying to get at in this just transition view. But I, I think it's really important to ground it in that what will the experience of a post-fossil fuel Toronto be like for people and how can we make it better? Yeah, 100%. And yeah, the question, how can we make it better is so so necessary, right? Like it's that, create that vision for people. And so... I'm curious, you, 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 it's a, this is the beginning of the project or the early stages of the project. And so I wonder if you talk a little bit about how you plan to approach the project and sort of what are the, some of the outcomes you're hoping to achieve with the consultations and the discussions and the sort of building from there? Yeah, our, our main project that we're building right now as a, the, the joint steering committee that I mentioned is what we're calling a listening project. And our plan is to can convene a, a whole bunch of listening sessions or listening circles or whatever we want to call them with different communities that have a, a relationship with our listening project partners. So, you know, whether that's going through community centers or service organizations focused on particular communities or focused on a topic area like food, we'll work with these kinds of organizations to 
speak with people in their community about what their priorities are now, what they envision for a Toronto in the future, and and start to talk a little bit about what that what climate action will mean for them. What can what should they expect in their community, and and what would they like to happen in their community? And our goal in the project, we we are trying to do some research to, to better understand how climate action intersects with people's everyday lives and what it means to jointly envision a good future in a in an urban neighborhood like this. But we also have we have a range of outputs that we plan as part of the project since it's community based. We're not just doing academic research. We're also developing, we have plans to develop things like policy interventions. How can we connect some of these ideas to policymaking at different levels on, on climate action and just transition? How can we build some of these pictures about what Scarborough should be into something public facing that people can interact with in Scarborough and maybe build on further? So the the project is is a kind of a round one that we're imagining of this of this process later in this summer. And hopefully we can build it into a future iterations that continue that that conversation about what Scarborough should be. And I think the the important thing that we're doing in this project is allowing it to develop together so that as we think about enacting what that vision should be, we we have a, a series of partners that we're trying to work with to think about what would enacting it look like for for their community? What would what do they need in order to make that change? Is it something policy related? Is it something community related? Is it about continuing a conversation in their community? Is it about telling that story more broadly? We're open to a range of those kinds of action-oriented outcomes, depending on what the the partners think would be best. Amazing. And that we talked about beforehand on the on the show how we'd love to have you to come back once you're done to sort of tell everyone what we've sort of learned from this experience. And so folks can look out for that in the future. But I know, and I was as I was doing some research for the interview, I noticed that you have a few ongoing projects that you've already sort of begun and sort of working on. And so I'm curious, in sort of those early stages in those projects, is there anything that you feel like people should sort of know about from the jump? Well, the one that my, I want to tell people about immediately is one I've worked in a little bit in examples because it's the energy poverty and retrofits for housing project that that I'm working on. And what I'm work, working on here is the particularly tricky climate action of trying to make rental homes much more efficient without causing housing insecurity or, or green gentrification where people can't can't afford or are, are kind of pushed out of their homes because of this climate action. And for this project, we're we're trying to understand this really complicated sector about what would policy interventions look like. And it's a layering of of funding from lots of different sources and protections for tenants to try to make energy retrofit happen for rental housing buildings, but in ways that protect the tenants who who live there. And for this project, I'm doing I'm about to do some interviews with with building owners to talk a little bit about what are some of the motivations for doing these retrofits and and what what would have to happen so that you would agree to uh, freeze rent or protect tenants uh, and what would what kinds of policy frameworks would need to be in place in order to support that protection for the tenants that live there. So that's one one project that we're that we have results from already a little bit and we'll continue to work on over the next year. We've been doing work as well in the cluster on active transportation. And so one of the other cluster members, Andre Sorensen, released an 
amazing report last year about the kinds of bicycle network that Scarborough could have just using the existing greenways in Scarborough. So kind of the hydro corridors, the the green laneways that the that the city or the public sectors already own. How can we make those into a cycling network that is amazing, would be the envy of the rest of Toronto. So there was a really excellent report that the the cluster supported that came out last year that was was a mapping what that would look like. So those are, those are some of the the main early projects that we have, and we have a couple of other things in development that hopefully I can tell you some more about when I when I come back. Amazing. And so if folks want to get to know again, CAUT broadcasts all over Scarborough. So shout out to you, Scarborough. If any folks from there are listening, or any folks just want to keep up with your work and and follow along, how can they do that? They can go to our website, Urban Just Transitions. .ca. It's the place where we collect together all, all of the projects that are under the umbrella of, of this cluster. Amazing. And so it is our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to thank you for being here, and then I'm going to throw it back to you so you can sort of anything, any last thoughts you have, whether or not you want to drive a point home you made before or say anything else to our audience, that is your opportunity. But before I do, thank you so much, Dr. Laura Tozer, a professor at the University of Toronto, and a part of the Urban Just Transitions Cluster. God, I'm obsessed with this topic. Thank you so much for being here. I learned a lot. And yeah, any last thoughts? Thank you so much for inviting me. And and I think I want to end by just stressing two points. One is how much we need to accelerate climate action in the, the next five or 10 years. I'm sure your listeners know that. But sometimes there's a bit of a, a hesitation to think about how other topics relate because we're worried it's going to slow down climate action. So we're, we're worried about getting too multidimensional about our climate action. But I, I really encourage everybody to think about the ways that take, thinking about equality and climate action helps to accelerate climate action. We'll never reach everybody transforming every, all the systems we need to reach if we don't think about taking equitable climate action, climate action that everybody can benefit from. So I really think that equity and acceleration for climate action go hand in hand. <laughs> 